Hey, Snacks! it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, we're discussing 411, if not for hope. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Seasons 6 and 7 and Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 4, Episode 11, If Not for Hope. John is in the house. Oh my god, I freaking love this episode simply for the fact that Lord John is a main character. Like, let's be honest, guys. It is pretty much one of the best parts of this. Lots of stuff going down in this episode. All of our characters firing on all cylinders. We're ramping up to the end of the season. And this episode starts on a bookend. So we start with Roger and we end with Roger. Don't get any Roger in between, but we get him at the beginning and the end. Show of hands, virtual hands that is, how many people were fooled by this whole trickery in the beginning? Because when I first watched season four, I had not read the books yet. Actually, I was reading Dragonfly and Amber and fully had the intention of doing a companion read-along thing and only reading the books so far as the show covered. Yeah, that didn't happen. I have zero self-control, guys. So I was totally fooled. I thought that Roger went back. Obviously, now having watched this show several times, I know he didn't go back. It was just a fantasy. But I can really understand why he would have gone back, to be honest. He was really facing a dilemma at the end of the last episode. He thought that Bree basically sent her dad to beat him up and sell him to the Mohawk because she was pissed at him. And yeah, he still loves her, but where does that leave him? Plus, if he's still with the Mohawk, obviously he's not going back for her. Potentially his only avenue for escape is to go through the stones and then come back at a later time. So that has to be really difficult for him. I can't imagine what it would be like to go that long without running hot water. So seeing him in a shower, bro, Totally felt that in my bones. I was like, oh man, that must feel so good. (laughs) Um, So it all turned out to be a daydream, but at the same time, it felt like a legitimate path to consider. I feel like I would not have blamed him for going back, but you know, Roger haters out there going to be hating him no matter what. So they probably just would have saw it as an excuse to blame him further for his cowardice. Y'all, I'm not having it, okay? (laughs) He's allowed to have his daydreams about being back in the future. And he didn't go. So there's that. But this episode also ends with Roger. And they finally made it to the Mohawk village of Shadow Lake. They're undergoing a process called the Gauntlet, which is basically where all the Braves in the village beat up on their new prisoners. And if they make it through the Gauntlet without faltering and make it to the chief standing at the end, then they are welcomed into the tribe as a new member. If they don't make it through the gauntlet, then they are kept a prisoner and a slave. Roger didn't make it through, so he gets to be a servant instead of a member of the tribe, which, sad face. 
But Jamie and Claire are coming, Roger. Hold on. So I thought that this was a fitting ending for this episode, all things considered, because next episode is dedicated to Roger. It is about his story and his coming to terms with everything. It's a great episode. I don't know that there will be that much to discuss because it is very Roger focused. There aren't a lot of storylines to break apart. So we'll get to that when we get to it, right? But before that, we have this entire episode to discuss. First and foremost on the list is Fergus and Marsley. They are so adorable. Hashtag relationship goals, right? Now, Fergus and Marsley are bigger characters in the show than they are in the books, but I really think that's just the show playing up their resources because Cesar Domboy and Lauren Lyle are fantastic. Their chemistry is great. They're wonderful on screen. So why would they not use that to their advantage? And I don't feel like it impacts the plot that much to give them a little more to go on, a little bit more to put into their performance. I think we're going to continue to see that in season six as well. They're going to beef up their storylines a little bit. And I am excited to kind of see where this next season takes us. But as for this episode, if not for hope, there were a couple of things that we really kind of started to get a glimpse of in this episode. First being that they're really starting to feel the strain of trying to make ends meet in a world where Fergus is not viewed as a man because he doesn't have two hands. He can't do man's work and they're sure as hell not going to hire him to do woman's work, you know? So where does that leave them? I can 100% see how in the next episode they make the executive decision. Actually, it might be in the season finale now that I'm thinking about it. But I can totally see how they're making that decision to go to the Ridge because it's like Fergus says, Jamie views him as whole. And fully capable of providing for his family, given the chance. But most people, most proprietors of any shops or business are going to take one look at him missing a hand and say, yeah, next. So I feel bad for Fergus in this moment because, yes, Marsley can sew and do women's work to bring in income. But Fergus doesn't really feel like a man relying on Marsley to be the breadwinner. So I think that's where when Marsley goes to Myrta and says, I want you to ask Fergus to go with you. This conversation between Myrta and Marsley is absolutely phenomenal. I love it. Not only for the dialogue, which I thought in general was really great in this episode, but generally speaking, just seeing how much Marsley cares about her husband and how smart she is. She's being manipulative, but in the best sort of way. She wants Fergus to realize that he has worth in this world and that every day he has a choice to put his best foot forward and be a leader and a provider or he can sulk. And so I think Myrta, God bless him. (laughs) He's like, what, marriage not all you thought it to be, lass? And she says, if I wanted him shot, I'd do it myself, but it wouldn't be fair to kill him first. He doesn't put his boots in my blankets. <laughs> to which Marta just goes, Christ, and kicks his shoes, his dirty, crusty shoes out of her blankets. Like, this is an age where women did the laundry by hand, okay? The least you can do is be considerate of not getting her sheets all filthy. Like, thank you, sir. <laughs> Good day. I love that Marsley doesn't 
think twice about saying something to him about it either. She's a very opinionated woman, and I think she fits in very well with the grand scheme of the Gabaldonian universe. She's like that in the books, but there's just something about how Lauren portrays her that really just knocks my socks off more often than not. And she says to Myrta, she says, I'll have a whole man or none at all. Because she fully realizes that being married to someone that doesn't feel that they're living up to their full potential, that they're being a burden and they're not carrying their weight, it's easy for them to get stuck in a rut and to become depressed and to not realize what they have in front of them because they're so worried about how things look. And the reality of the situation is that if you love each other and you're determined to make things work, you can make things work. But I think it was really an opportunity when Myrta asked Fergus to go with him to make that executive decision and say, you know what? No, my place is here with Marcely and Jermaine and I need to provide for them as best he can anyway. And so I think that was a big catalyst to their decision to go to the Ridge because they know that if nothing else, they can depend on the support and care of their family. But I think that living with Jamie and Claire gives Fergus and Marsley both an opportunity to prosper in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be able to prosper on their own in Wilmington. Something else that's played up in this episode a lot, I mean, we get the physical similarities mentioned quite a bit in the books and in previous episodes of Brianna and Ellen. The physical similarities are there. Myrta's mentioned it a couple of times already in season four. So the physical similarities of Brianna and her paternal grandmother are mentioned quite a bit in this series. But this is really the first episode where we begin to see Brianna learn more about her heritage. I think that it really sheds a light for Brianna on things. She's not doing well with the idea of Jamie right now just because of everything that she's been through and she's scared for Roger. But she's also curious to learn more about who she is, where she comes from. And when Jocasta sits down and she's talking to Brie about this gathering and trying to bring Brie out of her shell because Brie has been a bit of a recluse, and is not being very social <laughs> because she's not in a good place mentally. And I, I don't think that she's in a place where she can handle a lot of social interaction. And she would rather be shut up and draw and read and reflect and kind of deal with the situation on her own. She's very independent in that way. And she internalizes things a lot. She doesn't like to talk about her feelings. She's just one of those people. Because when she does talk about her feelings, she most of the time ends up exploding in some outburst of rage because she's just not a good communicator. That's just who she is as a person. I think when Jocasta says that conversation can ease a troubled mind, it kind of makes her think because Jocasta, you know, she just says, well, I used to paint. I was never as talented as your grandmother, though. That's where Brianna starts to become curious because she's realizing that her talent for drawing and painting comes from a place that's more than just who she developed into from a child. It's something that she inherited from this family that she doesn't really know much about. She wasn't around Jamie long enough to get his side of things, like to hear who his parents were, who his grandparents were, who his aunts and uncles were. And so she finds herself 
asking Jocasta more and more about this elusive grandmother that she supposedly looks like, but obviously never met. And she learns that Ellen, too, was pregnant out of wedlock, and she ended up marrying for love. And I think that that gives Brie a little bit of hope in this episode at the very beginning, because she feels some sort of kinship towards this grandmother. One of the key differences that Jocasta points out, though, is that Ellen ended up marrying the father of her child before the child was born. The child was born in wedlock. So that poses a problem because, obviously, Roger's not around. She's also similar to Ellen in her spirit as well because Ellen outwitted both of her brothers, Colin and Dougal. Ellen was the favorite of their father, Red Jacob, and he wasn't going to force her into something that she didn't want to do. He was going to let her marry for love. And after he died, Colm and Dougal just, they weren't up for that. They married away all of their sisters, um, with the exception of Ellen, only because she outsmarted them. And we get this story earlier on in the series. She was supposed to marry Malcolm Grant. And it was the last gathering that they had prior to the gathering in season one with the McKenzie clan. And they thought that she was with Malcolm Grant. And then it turns off she ran off with Brian Fraser. They hid away until she was well good and pregnant. And her brothers didn't have a choice but to allow her to marry Brian Fraser or be dishonored. It's not made that clear. So there's room for interpretation on this in this episode. But for me, this conversation with Jocasta is what gets Bree's wheels turning in her head on how she's going to get out of the situation that she's in. She's thinking, well, if Ellen could outwit her family who's trying to marry her off, maybe I can too. She's starting to realize that if she's going to have any chance of waiting until Roger comes back for her, she's going to have to manipulate the situation somehow. Jocasta, on the other hand, was married off very young, and she's had three husbands so far. She'll have a fourth by the end of season five. So her life has never been about marrying for love. It's this big romantic notion, and she appreciates the fact that her older sister got to marry for love, but Jocasta is a very practical person, and she realizes that nine times out of ten in the 18th century, Marrying for love wasn't a thing. And her and Brianna have many an argument about this because Brianna, coming from the 20th century, is thinking, why can't I marry for love? I don't want to get married. Why are you trying to shove me on these people? And Jocasta says, the time to be particular has long passed. If you don't get married, your child is going to be a fatherless bastard in his life will be in ruin. He will not have a reputation to begin with. So despite the fact that he comes from a good family, it it doesn't really matter. Like, yeah, he may very well inherit Jamie's land, but he's not going to be legitimate. And legitimacy in that time was super important to who you ended up being. Now, if you had a father that recognized you, even if you were born illegitimate, you could still come out on the fair end of the deal. But if Stephen Bonnet is this child's father, that doesn't look very good. And what Bree's worried about is that Roger will find out that it's not his baby and will walk out on her as well. So I think Bree wants to hope 
she wants to have that optimism that everything's going to work out, that her mother and father are going to find Roger and bring him back to her. But deep down, she has this nagging feeling now that she's talked to Jocasta. I think that her biggest fear prior to her conversations with Jocasta were that Roger was dead or that Roger would find out that the baby wasn't his and leave her. I think those were her biggest doubts. And then after talking to Jocasta, it was more so that Roger may not get back in time. She can't have a baby out of wedlock. It's not going to end well for either person. And so in that moment, we start to see Brianna mature because she's a very selfish person inherently. But when she realizes that she can no longer afford to be selfish because someone else depends on her now, we start to see a change happen. She starts to assume responsibility for this little person growing inside her. And despite the fact that it's not what she wants to marry Gerald Forbes, she's prepared to do it if it means giving her child a better life. So I feel like that's a very critical shift that we're getting in this episode from Brianna as a character. Now, as for Jocasta, was she right to try to marry Brianna off? By 21st century standards, no, because we don't believe in arranged marriages. We believe that everyone should have the right to choose who they want to marry or if they want to marry at all. But when you're looking at the grand scheme of the 18th century, when women weren't allowed to own property, the only way that women could own property is if their husband died. And then once they got remarried, they had to give it to their new husband. Women weren't really allowed to work. I mean, they were allowed to do small things like sewing and things like that. But for the most part, they couldn't earn a wage. So how is one supposed to provide for their family? Not to mention the fact that unwed mothers were extremely looked down upon. The few women that were allowed to work, if someone found out that that was an unwed mother that was doing their laundry or mending their socks, forget about it. Like they'll take their business elsewhere because that's the kind of culture that it was at the time. So I don't blame Jocasta for trying to do what's best for her niece. What I do find a little bit appalling is that Jocasta doesn't seem to pause for a second to think about the fact that Brianna is kind of actually married. No, she didn't have any witnesses to her hand fasting, but there is somebody potentially coming for her, the father of her child, potentially. So I think I understand that Jocasta is trying to look out for Brie and to make sure she's taken care of because you can't wait till the last minute. I mean, if someone is obviously pregnant, it's going to be harder to get them married to somebody. Like it's going to take a pretty healthy bribe to get a man to take on a woman that's severely pregnant. However, she did her best for Brie. I fully believe that, that she really just wants to put her in a position to succeed in life. Now, of all the men that were at that dinner party, this is a game I like to play with myself. Who would I have chosen if I had been in Bree's position? Before Lord John shows up, I think that my choice probably would have been Judge Alderdice. He just seems like, A, he's the best looking of the three, and B, he's the kindest of the three. I mean, the worst part about the Judge Alderdice situation is his mother, okay? Let's be honest. She is, she would be a hell of a person to live with. And clearly she's up her son's butt. That would be my one deterrent to picking him. 
Um, but honestly, if I if my choices were left down to Lieutenant Wolf and Gerald Forbes, like, oh my God, just kill me. There were some hilarious moments during this whole exchange. Um, Brianna doesn't really know how to react <laughs> politely in this situation. She gets what Jocasta is about. But she is not happy about it. And she doesn't want to make a fool out of her or her aunt, but she's not having this whole being set up with Cross Creek's most eligible bachelors. The reaction at the dinner table, though, <laughs> where they're playing the game and then uh, Forbes leans over to Brianna and says, must I close my eyes when you are before me? She just deadpan looks at him and says, Yes. <laughs> And he just doesn't know how to take it. He's like trying his hardest to flirt and win her over. And oh, man, that's the funniest part about all of this is that the men were literally tripping over themselves, peacocking and trying to make themselves as appealing as they possibly could, bribing her with gifts and offering to take her out to see the town and take strolls in the garden and be all romantic. And then... Lord John shows up and it's like everybody just deflates. They're just a bunch of sad puppies. The look that Forbes and Wolf give each other, they're like, why even bother? <laughs> because, I mean, it's Lord John. Like, David Barry is a very handsome man. I don't think that's news to anybody. But Lord John, like, how can anybody compete with, A, the fact that he's a lord and has money, and B, the fact that he's extremely handsome, extremely charming. I mean, yeah, I think any woman thrown into a room with Judge Alderdice, Gerald Forbes, Lieutenant Wolf, and Lord John would pick Lord John. <laughs> like, if you're not hoping for any more children out of it and you're not marrying for love, you're just marrying out of convenience, what the heck does it matter? And clearly that's where Brianna's mind goes as well. By the time we get to the proposal scene at the end of all of this, Brianna has reconciled herself to the fact that she won't be able to marry for love. I think she was very hesitant about Lord John and the idea of him being there because he's a particular friend of her father's. And she's obviously not in a good place with Jamie. And I think that her mind immediately jumps to the fact that he's there to be a spy or that he knows more than he should. And John makes it very clear to her, look, your father would never tell me anything that you yourself would not wish to tell me. Granted, he doesn't know everything that's passed between Jamie and Bree. The poor man has literally stepped into a minefield with no forewarning. I kind of honestly feel bad for him, but if anybody is equipped to handle that kind of thing, it's John. And I love how he just goes into problem-solving mode the minute he finds out what the issue is. And oh my God, I swear, if Lizzie causes one more problem, like she's like, oh, mistress, I was so worried in you and your condition. Jesus H. Roosevelt Christ, Lizzie, like shut your mouth. Her character in general annoys me. I'm reading book six right now, and guys, I cannot stand her. I know that this is not a popular sentiment amongst book readers, but I literally cannot stand Lizzie's character for multiple reasons, for which I'm sure we will learn more about in season six, so I will leave it to your imagination if you have not read the books. 
But yeah, once Lord John finds out that Brianna's pregnant, he immediately jumps into kind of problem-solving mode. He immediately starts to analyze the situation. He wants to know everything, whether she's married, who this Roger is, where Jamie and Claire are. And you can just see the wheels starting to turn in his head. Like, how can I make things better? What can I do? Can I pull any strings or make any connections, knock on any doors? What can I do? He's such a good guy. I really do love John just because of the lengths that he's willing to go to to help people. He doesn't know Brianna. Yes, he knows her parents, but, you know, that only carries so much weight because Brianna's an adult. She's her own person. She may not be worth helping, but he would help her just for the sake of who her father is, which really says a lot about him as a person. Now, the one thing about this episode that I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Um, and I guarantee you that most people, particularly book readers, will already know what I'm talking about, is the tryst in the pantry with Judge Alderdice. Even before I read the books, I was like, this does not seem right. This is not who this character is. He would never do something like this. I completely believe in that statement. This is a time when sodomites, as they were called back then, were hung or tortured to openly have a tryst with another guest in someone else's house in the pantry where anybody can see you. John's smarter than that. And I would hope to God that a judge would be smarter than that as well, especially given the consequences if somebody finds you. I get that they had to write it like this because the viewer needed to have justification for Brianna's actions during the proposal scene. But honestly, the looks between John and Alderdice at the table, at the kitchen table, coupled with Alderdice's reaction to Brianna's psychoanalysis, could have been enough for Brianna to come to those conclusions on her own. And she could have said how she come to these conclusions in the proposal scene when questioned. So I don't think that it was entirely necessary even to have this. And I feel like it was a blunder on the writer's parts or whoever's decision it was to include this in the show. As for the proposal scene in general, there were a couple of parts that really got to me. The first bit of their conversation is John saying, I'm not sure this is what your father had in mind when he asked me to look in on you. She said, I know, but if I didn't ask you for the sake of my child, and then he says, you are your father's daughter, that is certain. Like the amount of times that Jamie has asked John to do something for the sake of his children and then for John to interject that, like Brie has no clue what he's talking about, but we as the viewers, it's just a fantastic moment to appreciate the subtleness of Lord John. Like he's just like, yeah, you are your father's daughter. That much is certain. (laughs) I mean, I don't think that John regrets doing anything that Jamie has asked him to do for his children. But nine times out of 10, if Jamie asks John to do a favor, it is in relation to either William or Brie. So I thought that that little jab was just perfection. And the other part of 
that that really stuck out to me is the end of that conversation. So, I mean, we get the intense back and forth between John and Bree where we see a little bit of Bree's rash tendencies, but I don't even think it's rash. I think she's trying to be brave because she's trying to find a way forward that will help her to be with Roger. She's doing her level best and it's not working uh, because John's way too honorable to marry Jamie's daughter. And he it's like he says, I'm drawn to you for reasons I can't explain. He's drawn to her because she's so much like Jamie. And he doesn't feel that that's right to marry Jamie's daughter on the grounds that he's sexually motivated by her, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, like, if he were ever to have a successful sexual relationship with a woman, it would be Brie. And I know that that's very coarse, but... I think that is one of John's major motivators into saying no. It's like he says, I'm tempted to submit to your outrageous proposal. It would surely teach you to play with fire. Bree thinks that she's making a proposal of convenience. I think that she went a step too far in threatening him. Honestly, he is such a nice person that he he was going to do whatever he had to do to help her in the first place. She didn't have to threaten him. And I think that was taking it a bit too far. And she realized that. She realized she misstepped. She admits it. She apologizes. But yeah, I just think that all in all, that conversation is a real heart to heart. She tells him really deep down what's bothering her, that even if Roger comes back, he may not be willing to marry her because the baby that she's carrying may not be his. And John realizes how much of a predicament she's really in. So at the very end of that scene, when Brie is silently crying and she says, if I marry him, I'll be exchanging hope for a broken heart, but I'll do what I must for the sake of my child. She's prepared to make the sacrifices that she has to make to ensure that her her son has a good life. But it's really unfortunate. And I think as she walks away, John realizes that he can do something to help her. Even if it's just a little something, he can buy her more time. He has no intention of actually marrying her. But it's playing the game, buying time for Roger to come back. At the end of the day, I don't think that Brie could have asked for more. I mean, whenever she initially brought it up, it was simply a way for him to keep his sexual tendencies in the closet, and also for her to have a marriage where there were no expectations of a sexual relationship. That's what she wanted out of marrying Lord John. But when John comes in to rescue Brie from Gerald Forbes, there is a line that Brie says to Jocasta, had you not encouraged me to find a husband, I never would have opened my heart to Lord John. And I think Brie means every word of what she's saying. Because if Brie hadn't been put in this impossible situation where she was trying to avoid a marriage that she didn't want, she never would have opened up to John, told him what was bothering her, asked for his help, and earned a great friend in the process. So I really liked that line. I thought that it had a good double meaning. The last topic of discussion is Jamie and Claire. I always save the best for last, guys. There's not a lot of Jamie and Claire in this episode because how much can you put them traipsing through the wilderness of the Americas? That's the reason that they're not in the next episode. 
because the showrunners thought that it would be redundant. And I do get that. I don't know that I would have wanted to watch the exact same thing over and over again. Granted, I love me some Jamie and Claire, so I'm sure they could have had a couple of scenes in there, much like this episode, but I understand why they chose to do it this way as well. The first scene that really got me was the scene between Claire and Ian, where Ian's trying to intercede on Jamie's behalf. He thinks that Claire is angry with him, and Jamie thinks that Claire is angry with him. And she's not. And I think that she knows that much, but she's still trying to sort her feelings out. I think deep down, she feels angry. And that anger is misdirected to Jamie. And I think she realizes that, that she's not really angry with Jamie, but she can't put a finger on what her anger is exactly. And so rather than say something she doesn't mean, she's kind of holding on to it, internalizing it. On top of the fact that she's worried. She's a worried mother. And I love the line that she says to Ian. I'm paraphrasing, but she says, I understand that you and Jamie were doing what was right, but I can't help but think about what your actions have done to Brian Roger and how they're feeling. It's really hard for her to justify completely up and acting like nothing happened with Jamie and Ian when so many people are suffering as a result of their actions. So rather than give it both barrels to Jamie and Ian, she's just keeping her own counsel on it until she's kind of sorted through her actual emotions on the subject. So by the end of the episode, when we get the reconciliation between Jamie and Claire, she's fully come to terms with how she's feeling and where her anger should be directed And so when she apologizes to Jamie and says, I'm not angry with you, he's surprised because all this time he thought that the world was against him. He was angry at himself and he thought everybody else was angry at him too. So he's just been shouldering this on his own the entire time. He looks at her and he says, if you're not angry with me, then who are you angry at? And she said, the world, everybody, Stephen Bonnet. It's a shitty situation. There's no way that anybody could be okay with the way that things have turned out. Granted, eventually everyone will make their peace with it, but I said it last episode, I don't blame Jamie for what happened. He was given the wrong information. What bothered me about this episode was how quickly Bree forgave Lizzie for her actions, but wasn't ready to forgive Jamie for an equally likely mistake. Like if somebody pointed and said, That's the guy that raped your daughter. Are you really going to ask a lot of questions? No, you're not going to ask questions. I think it's unrealistic to expect that. And yes, he ran his mouth and he said things to her that he shouldn't have. But damn it, so did she. She said a lot of things that she shouldn't have said as well. So for there to be that double standard there really annoys the crap out of me. You can't blame somebody for what they say to you. And then not hold yourself accountable for what you say to them. That's unfair. And we see how much it has affected Jamie. He's a deeply religious person. I know the show doesn't really cover it, but he is a devout Catholic. And the fact that Bree said that she wanted him to go to hell, that stuck with him. He's worried that he has done something irreparable 
and that he's never going to have his daughter back, that there's nothing on this earth that he can do. He says, I really hope we get Roger back or she'll never forgive me. I think Claire knows that, and she says it. She says, Bree's exactly like you. She says stuff in anger that she doesn't mean. And you didn't mean the things that you said to her either, did you? I think that was an eye-opening thing for her to say to him because until then, like, he's like, no, I didn't mean the things that I said to her. And he starts to think, well, if I didn't mean the things that I said to her, then maybe Claire's right. Maybe she didn't mean the things that she said to me either. And I think at that point, he can start to feel the weight lifting off of his shoulders a little bit because he's realizing that he he still needs to do everything that he can to get Roger back. He needs to make that wrong right. But that it may not be the end of the world either way. That Brie will make her peace with it eventually. She may hold a grudge for a long time, but eventually she will see that he's worth forgiving, I guess, is, is how I would phrase that. And as I was seeing Claire and Jamie talk to each other, I realized that Jamie doesn't blame Claire for her actions. Claire explains to him that Brie asked her to keep a secret and that Brie used to confide in Frank for these things. And when Frank died, she started to confide in Claire and Claire didn't want to break that trust. Claire recognizes she made a promise to Jamie to always be honest with him. And she never ever in a million years thought that she would have to keep a secret from him. I think she realized that I may not be able to keep that promise anymore. And he's okay with that. He's made his peace with that. He doesn't blame her for her actions. Claire blames herself. And that's when I came to the realization, I think that Jamie and Claire blame themselves for what happened 10 times more than they blame each other for what happened. They're shouldering the blame for this entire thing. And it's kind of driven a wedge between them in a lot of ways. And I'm glad that they were able to bridge it back together. I don't view this reconciliation as just pity sex or anything like that. There were a couple mentions of it, like what you think that's good enough type thing. And I honestly don't take it that way at all. I think that they had a good, honest conversation that they aired what was bothering them and they worked through their problems. And then them having sex was their way of sealing their reconciliation. They're a very physical couple. That's not news to anybody that watches or reads Outlander. So to think that they wouldn't have makeup sex on the road in a tent, like, guys, really? Like, it's not out of character for them. This is completely to be expected. So I liked how it ended. I liked that this episode wasn't necessarily about Jamie and Claire, and neither is the next episode, because it gives us a chance to see the other characters in the series and how they're orienting themselves in the grand scheme of the show and the world. One thing that I did forget to mention was that in the porch scene with John and Bree, John has been thinking about Bree's predicament and how Roger may not want to come back to Bree when he finds out that Bree's pregnant with another man's child. And he shares a bit with Bree to ease her mind. And he's talking about his son and how he's not his blood. And Bree says, you're a good man. 
And John looks at her and says, good doesn't come into it. I love him more than life itself. And Roger will too love the child. It was probably the best thing that he could have said to her. And I think in lieu of Brie not having her father to tell her these things, like this is a man that was put in a very similar situation to what Roger has gone through in that he took Claire back even though she was pregnant with another man's child. I think in lieu of Frank not being able to have that conversation with Brie, John is probably the next best thing. And I'm so glad that he had the courage to tell her these things because I do think that it helped ease her mind. Even if it was just a little bit, it's much better than the burden that she was dealing with. So I really did love that conversation. As for performance of the episode, anytime Lord John is on the screen, you know David Barry is going to be my performance of the episode. (laughs) So David Barry for me, he's always phenomenal as Lord John. I really, really, really hope we get more of him in the future. As for quote of the episode, the line in the porch scene between John and Bree when he says, we're all here in this new world, not because it's new. These lands are as old as any. It's only new because there is hope and hope is at the very heart of love. So when we get to talking about the episode title, if not for hope, if we didn't have hope, We wouldn't have love and we wouldn't have Outlander. So on that note, I will bring my analysis of season four, episode 11 to a close. But before we close out, I want to take a moment to voice what you guys had to say on the subject because you guys always have a lot to bring to the table. First comment is from... Leonie Henderson. She says, so happy to see Lord John and for him to continue to be kind and caring towards Jamie and his family. Yes, it's really great, isn't it? It's so fantastic how much he is a part of the family, honestly. I mean, it's just wonderful. I love seeing it. Marie Connor says, it's always awesome to see Lord John. He saves the day all the time and is here for Brie now as he's been there for her father. I love watching him process what has happened to Brie and see his heart of compassion react to her pain. Jocasta's attempts to marry Brie were not a surprise because of the time period and Jocasta's constant protection of her status at River Run. Brie is her great niece and represents her family name. So many decisions were made back then based on status and covering up secrets. I guess the world hasn't changed much, smiley face. I felt they resolved the tension between Jamie and Claire very well. It was a remarkable conversation of grace and forgiveness that anyone could learn from. Most of us can relate to a family tension that keeps us awake and is on our minds constantly. Jamie so desperately wants to be the father that Bree deserves, the one he has always wanted to be for her. I particularly agree with the the last paragraph about Jamie and Claire because it really is a graceful moment for both of them where they admit that they're wrong. They were both wrong, but they forgive each other, you know? They're sorry for what they did. And honestly, their stubbornness, the fact that it took this long to get it figured out, like, that's kind of frustrating. But I'm glad that we finally got the tension resolved between them and that they didn't wait until the last episode to kind of get things figured out. I think that honestly, the fact that Lord John literally just took Brie under his wing and did everything he could to make her safe and keep her happy 
and to help her in any way that he could. Like, that speaks volumes to his character. Like, how could you not love Lord John when he does things like that? It's it's so amazing. Last comment of the day is from Regina Geisert. She says, loved seeing Lord John again. I thought it was good for Brie to have someone who was friends with her parents and became a friend to her. While I understand where Jocasta was coming from, I hated that she just couldn't accept Brie's word that she was already married, albeit a handfast marriage, but still a marriage nonetheless. I mean, her parents are literally tracking down her husband after the huge mess of incomplete information and minimal communication to bring him back to her, for goodness sakes. And even with that, Jocasta still believes she needs to marry Brie off. I can empathize with Brie because she's already married and in her heart, Roger is the only one for her. She has hope that not only her parents will bring him back, but that her baby is his as well and yet knows that she has to bide her time until they return. Thus, her ploy with Lord John coming into play. Like Brie said to Lord John, if she accepts the proposal, she'll be trading hope for a broken heart, which I believe was the catalyst of him helping her with the fake engagement ploy to bide her time until Jamie and Claire return with Roger. The Jamie and Claire resolution. I was mostly satisfied with it, but it didn't feel like a complete resolution. It felt like a partial resolution and one that wouldn't be complete until they brought Roger back. While they said they could have secrets but not lies between them, keeping the identity of your child's rapist to yourself is a pretty big secret. I feel like if Claire really tried, she could have gotten Brie on board with Jamie being told exactly who it was and saved them all the trouble of tracking down Roger as well as save Brie the hassle of warding off Jacasta's attempts to marry her off. I do believe that Roger still would have been punched in the face by Jamie at the very least, but not have been beaten as badly or sold to the Mohawk. Hmm. Yeah, the Jamie and Claire resolution, I did feel like that was really complete. Like, I felt like they would be okay even if they didn't get Roger back. Obviously, it would be a hurdle and Brianna would not be okay and there would still be that hurdle to jump, but I felt like by the end of this episode, Jamie and Claire were on the same page again and that they would have tackled that issue together. So I'm not sure that I see eye to eye on that point, Regina, but as for the rest of it, honestly, yeah, I do feel like it's a big secret that Claire kept. I get her reasoning behind it because honestly, like if that had happened to me and I told my mom, but I didn't want my dad to know, and my mom told my dad, I never would have been able to trust my mom with anything ever again because, yes, it was a big secret to keep from Jamie, but also it's a big secret to divulge to somebody else when the person that it happened to didn't want it known. So you kind of have to think of that as well. It's not just about Claire keeping something from Jamie. It's about Claire sharing something about her daughter that her daughter doesn't want known. I feel like she did have to respect Bree's wishes a lot of the time. Thanks so much for everyone that wrote in. I always enjoy hearing your comments, so please, please, please make sure to look out for the next listener comment. It should be out. Um, I normally try to put them out Wednesday or Thursday on the Sassanac Files Facebook and Instagram. So if you want your thoughts heard on the next episode of the Sassanac Files, which is 412 Providence, make sure to look out for that new thread and get your comments in. That wraps up this week's episode on 411, If Not For Hope. Like I said, make sure to join me next week for the penultimate episode of season four, Providence. And until then, you guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye.